This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And we have stunning news tonight. Alec Baldwin facing criminal charges in the deadly shooting on the set of the movie Rust. Prosecutors planning to charge the star with involuntary manslaughter in the death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins after she was struck in the chest by a live round of ammunition fired from a prop gun held by Baldwin back in 2021. We've got an in-depth hour on those charges against Alec Baldwin and the armorer on that set later in the show. And there's also some very sad news tonight on the death of a folk rock icon, David Crosby, has died at the age of 81. His family says after a long illness, he has succumbed. David Crosby was one of the founding members of The Birds and Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And his music for so many was really the soundtrack of the 60s and decades to follow in his genre in particular. And who could forget songs like, well, like this. Teach your children well Their father's hell did slowly go by and I want to bring in CNN's Bill Weir, who interviewed David Crosby for the CNN documentary Woodstock at 50. Also, Greg Harris, president and CEO of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Glad to have you both here and lean on your expertise on this icon in particular. I want to begin with you, Bill, if I can, because you interviewed David Crosby for the CNN documentary Woodstock at 50. Tell me about some of the highlights during your time speaking with him. Well, it was actually the second time uh, I hung out with Cross, and he is hands down top three. He's on my Mount Rushmore of interview <laughs> subjects, not just because I'm a huge music fan of his era, but because he's one of the most honest and open books at this stage in his life. He, his whole life at, at this, when I met him in 29, you know, around 2005 and then through the years we kept in touch, he had been through uh, heroin and cocaine addiction. He'd been in jail in Texas. He'd had eight stents in his heart. He'd had a liver transplant. Um, his son that he'd given up for adoption when he, in the 60s, they were reunited later in life and was a musician and they actually recorded and toured together. And so he was just sort of grateful and, and, and sort of sheepish about the fact that he didn't deserve you know, to survive his his contemporaries like Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix. Um, but wow, what a life, what a life he lived. And I, I we he, at the time he was recording five albums in five years of new music. He wasn't just content to play CSNY. He was, he was, he had all this stuff he wanted to get down. And I asked him about it. There was a song at the time he recorded that, that the lyric is, I've been thinking a lot about dying and how to do it well. And that led to this question. burst of creativity that you've had. You sing about death. Do you think about how you want to be remembered? Not so much. The songs will do that. They're the best I can do. That's a weird thing. Everybody's scared to talk about it. The question is, what are you going to do with it? 
How do you spend that two weeks or that 10 years? And I got that figured out. Family, music. Yeah, we got to get ourselves back to the God. Because it's the only thing I can do. He's such a complicated, you know, interesting guy. He can be lovable. He could be a, a complete porcupine and burned a lot of bridges, including bandmates. Uh, but man, what a legacy of songwriting and, and that voice that he left. What a chance. I mean, what a chance to have that interview and to have his words and, and just the poignance of it. Greg, Greg I want to know from you. I mean, what was your reaction when you first heard the news of his passing today? You know, um, uh, thank you, Laura. And uh, it, it was, um, you seem, it seemed like he was bulletproof, right? Uh, this is a guy that went through a, a lot, um, always seemed to, to come back for more. And then the other thing I thought about, and um, everybody, I think, in music, is just that, that harmony, that vocal harmony that uh, is truly the, the cornerstone of the California sound. And uh, that was a very, very important piece um, you know, the birds were significant. They're rock and roll hall of fame inductees for their impact and influence. They were inducted in 91. And of course, Crosby, Stills and Nash is inducted. They came in in 97 and just picture each of those bands without that, without that harmony, without that sound. And then the other thing, um, that, that was really amazing that came through in the interview that you did, um, is just, he had a joy for music. It was a magic. And sometimes that's what the more troubled things are elsewhere, when you're making music, that's where everything is is perfect and everything is one. And I think that um, he shared that in his induction speech, that he talked about that music is alchemy and magic, and you could feel that and sense that. And so, uh, bittersweet day for us in Cleveland, Ohio, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We lost a two-time inductee. In fact, I want to play a little bit from that induction speech when he said some of what you're talking about. Let's listen in. Music is magic. Music bridges the gap between human beings. That each man is an island stuff, that's true. But music does bridge that gap. It's been mankind's universal language since mankind started. I don't want us to forget that in the business part of it. It is a transcendent magic. We are privileged be allowed to do it. Mm. Bill, when you think about those words and, and just the man behind the music, he wasn't always alone, obviously. He was very much somebody who was ta- talked about in the same conversation with his former bandmates. And there was a lot of controversy surrounding conflict and the like. What did he say to you about them splitting up? Did he ever think they'd resolve their differences? He was sort of resigned to the fact that he had, frankly, pissed them off so badly over the years and owned it. And he said he was horrible to them, uh, not the least of which was becoming a full-blown addict in front of them. He talked about that. Um, but it, that's what's so interesting, his talent at just at the right time, right? You know, he, he dropped out of college. He's a, a, a sort of a Southern California kid. Dad was a cinematographer in Hollywood. He, he falls into a band with Roger McGuinn, who, and they form the birds, you know, eight miles high, turn, turn, turn. So you want to be a rock and roll star, but then they couldn't get along. They break up. And then he forges this super group where he, the first time they harmonized at Mama Cass's or the Mamas and the Papas, her house, him with Graham Nash and Stephen Stills, he, they looked at each other and knew. And they also knew that it would be Crosby, Stills and Nash because Nash 
Stills and Crosby sounds like a law firm. He sees the joke. <laughs> it just came together. And then when Neil Young came by and, and at Joni Mitchell's house and say, I want to join the band. And they're like, well, what can you do? And he says, have you heard me sing uh, with Graham Nash? And have you heard me play guitar? And they brought him on. But then by the end, they, you know, they weren't talking to each other anymore. And it was either insulting a, a spouse or something that uh, Cross said. I was, he was hugely selfish, had a huge ego. But that broke my heart because when you look at Woodstock, the film, they, their second set ever was at three in the morning on Monday. So 500,000 people, half of them are probably asleep. But it, the, the beauty of that, of that, those, that little trio on stage there. And so I, I asked Cross about, about the breakups. If the four guys who gave us these incredible harmonies can't exist conflict-free, what hope is there for the rest of us? Always remember, those four guys were in conflict long before Woodstock and long after Woodstock. Woodstock was the bright, shiny day. It was the exception. Woodstock was a glimpse of what we could have. Of course, he was a proud, uh, flaming liberal and uh, and very much vocal, both in protest songs during the Vietnam era, against the George W. Bush presidency, totally engaged in the news. That's that's how we sort of became friendly. Um, But just a fascinating, interesting, really smart guy. You know, Greg, Bill mentioned the phrase supergroup, and Cream was, I guess, the first supergroup, but then Crosby, Stills, and Nash was the first American supergroup. Tell us about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, as as Bill mentioned, um, and by the way, Bill, that was a wonderful lesson in, in Laurel Canyon history there. Terrific. But, uh, you know, the, the um, you have the birds who are, who are just massive and uh, they are defining that sound. Right. They're defining that that sort of um, Southern California sound. And then you have the Buffalo Springfield also um, very successful. And the members of those bands come together. And that's where you get Crosby, Stills, um, and Nash, and then eventually Young joining. And um, what's remarkable is so often that happens, and it's not what you are hoping for. <laughs> and in a way, the combination of those voices and, and the weaving of those voices in the music, just think about wooden ships. I think we let in with that today. Uh, if you just hear that song and close your eyes, um, you get goosebumps, and it's the 150th, the 1,000th time you heard it, you still get goosebumps. So they're defining this sound that is associated with, with this Southern California, and arguably without these bands, without the birds, without um, Crosby, Sills, and Nash, you don't have the Eagles. You don't have where country rock goes later in the 70s. That just doesn't happen. And, and David Crosby was a massive uh, a cornerstone to that piece, and... It's a shame they weren't together uh, constantly, and where would that have gone? But what they left us is just remarkable, and we're going to celebrate it uh, here at the museum uh, forever. Well, that's to his point. The idea, in his own words, music is magic. It bridges the gap between human beings. For a lot of people, they thought the gap lessened because of the music of him. So thank you. So Thank you both tonight. You bet. Thank you, Laura. Well, everyone, later tonight, we're going to have a deep dive into the charges against Alec Baldwin. And when we come back, the Supreme Court saying they still have not figured out who leaked that draft opinion that ultimately ended up overturning Roe v. Wade last year. Really a quick break right now as we remember the legendary icon, David Crosby.
So here are some numbers for you to chew over. 126 interviews of 97 people. Employees admitting sharing details with their spouses. And the Supreme Court still has not figured out who leaked that draft opinion overturning Roe v. Wade last year. So what does all this mean for the court ahead of what looks like another contentious year with a whole lot of very important issues? Joining me now to discuss, Erin Carmone, senior correspondent at New York Magazine and co-author of Notorious RBG, and CNN legal analyst Steve Vladek. I'm glad you're both here because I'm telling you, I've been looking through it. Of course, many of us were watching this and seeing this when it first leaked and thought, man, who did this? Get to the bottom of it quickly. And I wonder how it will actually impact the integrity of the court. But then I saw in the review, I'll start with you here, Steve. Um, It's being touted, this investigation, as very thorough. But did I miss something that mentioned specifically whether the justices themselves or the spouses were actually interviewed? Did you see anything about that? Uh Laura, if you, if you missed it, I missed it. I mean, I think if we're measuring thoroughness by whether the investigation was conducted by Inspector Clouseau or the Keystone <laughs> Cops, then maybe that would be one thing. But, you know, this has all the hallmarks of an investigation that was never seriously intended to actually find what it was looking for, um, not asking, you know, for polygraphs from any of the dozens of employees who were interviewed, not asking the justices, not asking the justices' family members if they have any knowledge of the leak. You know, in some cases, basically asking the employees to say, did you do it? And if they said no, that was the end. Um, And I think, you know, Laura, the question is, why would the court be so invested in not actually getting to the bottom of it? And I think the answer is because no resolution is probably better at this point than a resolution that's going to piss off half of the country. Um, where it's identified as someone from one side of the aisle. You know, it's really intriguing that that aspect of it, the idea of not actually ever seriously intending. And perhaps that is the truth. I wonder if you can weigh in this, Irene, um, Irene, excuse me, because I do wonder, you know, if you don't interview the people who have drafted the opinions, and of course the American public's looking at this and saying to themselves, okay, I wonder what's going on already behind closed doors, outside of the you know, eye of the public in the oral argument, when the justices are trying to convince one another, they're, they're exchanging drafts back and forth, trying to nudge one in one direction. We almost had the sense initially that this might be something to either lock a position in or to encourage somebody to change based on the fallout. How do you see this investigation? Well, Laura, I just checked, and it's been seven hours since I reached out to the Supreme Court's public information office asking them the exact question that we've been discussing here, which is, did they interview the justices? And if they did not interview the justices, why not? Um, Since seven hours, I haven't gotten any response. I happen to know that multiple other reporters reached out to the public information office, have not heard back as far as I can see anything published. And so I, I guess I'm left wondering, why do this at all? As Steve says, it shows that there's no particular appetite to find out who leaked it. But they were also under no obligation to conduct this type of investigation. They were under no no obligation to write this super weird report that on the one hand is very revealing and on on the other doesn't really tell us that much. Um, Ultimately, this was a decision that affected the lives of millions of people, continues to affect the lives of millions of people. And this on some level was a sideshow. And on the other hand, it, it shows us how very unaccountable and how very secretive this institution is. I mean, the story of Washington, D.C. in the past several weeks has been 
people don't really know how to handle documents, it seems, especially documents that are very important to the way we order our lives or to our feelings of personal security and autonomy and agency, perhaps. And I, I wonder in terms of the lesson here, because it's it's not looked at in a vacuum, right, Steve? Much to Erin's point, the idea that there's already questions about the credibility of the court, the integrity, that whether it's political or not. Of course, they've been fighting the perception that they should be regarded as anything less than um, objective. And yet, when this happened, will this have a negative impact? I'm not just how the, the public might see the court, but really how they interact with each other. Oh, Laura, I think there's no question. I mean, I, I think when the justices publicly go out and say, you know, we're going to have a hard time trusting each other, right? This is going to change how we function behind the scenes. That has to be right. And, you know, I think we saw the, the one thing in the report that actually made sense um, was some of the uh, information technology related recommendations about modernizing the court's infrastructure, about actually imposing the kinds of security protocols that every other government entity in Washington is used to. And, and frankly, I, mean, I think if there's a lesson there, it's that this is a court that has become so cloistered from the political branches. This is exactly the kind of thing that as recently as 15, 20 years ago would have been the you know, invitation to some kind of interbranch dialogue. Hey, Congress, we could use some more money for new technology. Hey, Congress, we could use help figuring out how to create a meaningful, secret, secure system right in the building. And you look at something like the Chief Justice's year-end report, Laura, this anodyne, just sort of banal statement that John Roberts put out on New Year's Eve, where there were all these opportunities to talk about, you know, how Congress could help, how the courts could benefit from being part of this interbranch conversation. And instead, all it talks about is judicial security. So to me, I mean, Erin's right that, like, the real question is, why do this report? I think it is of a piece with this mentality that there is absolutely nothing rotten in Denmark and people should stop complaining that there is when the report itself is actually evidence of all the ways in which that's just not true and in which whether you like what the court is doing on the merits or dislike what the court is doing on the merits, this really just isn't how we would expect a institution to function in a healthy system. Well, Iran, I'll give you the last word really quickly. I want to hear your reaction to that idea of a healthy institution. I mean, I think it's clear that the Supreme Court being left to do this on their own, by their own devices is not working. I mean, I like the part where they said that they couldn't actually track the printing um, because they only had so many printer wands and some of the printers were not even networked to each other. So to say that this investigation was thorough, it was perhaps a thorough investigation into a very broken place. Well, we will have to wait and see if, they, if anything ever ultimately comes from this, or maybe somebody will raise their hand and say, it was me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me, Taylor Swift style. Who knows? Thank you so much for your time, both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. Look, $5 million. $5 million. That's what a San Francisco committee is proposing giving to every eligible black resident as reparations. I'll tell you more about that next. Well, we have a major development in San Francisco, an advisory committee on African-American reparations releasing a proposal that would include a one-time payment of $5 million to each eligible black resident to address 
institutional harms inflicted on black Americans. Now, the committee, it actually has no authority to implement this recommendation, but the proposal will be considered by the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. Let's talk about it now with former Republican Congressman Joe Walsh and CNN political commentator Karen Finney. It is important to, and we were sitting here thinking about and reading it, going, is it one-time payment of $5 million to each or a total in pool? Because, again, there was a case in Evanston, Illinois, where they had a similar plan with not that amount. It was about $25,000 per person instead. But here on the screen, they show this lump sum payment. And um, this is going to be a contentious issue. I mean, the idea of reparations more broadly has remained a contentious issue for a variety of reasons. What do you make of this proposal? Well, given that the committee doesn't have the actual ability to enforce, you know, to actually make this happen, it seemed like more of a messaging opportunity to say, we've got to reckon with slavery. And I do think that that, to my mind, is what we have to, as a country, have a conversation. We need truth and reconciliation about not just the harms of slavery in terms of the ability to generate and pass you know, generational wealth, but when we talk about redlining, when we talk about what happened with the GI Bill when, you know, after World War II, when African-Americans, World War I, when African-Americans came home and were treated like second-class citizens, or when we're talking about the so- Social Security. And, I mean, there are structural, systemic um, policies that prevented African-Americans from even... You know, we talk a lot about we want everybody to start from the same place, but but there are a lot of people in this country who never even had a chance to get to the starting block. Um, you know, I also think we have to acknowledge that it is a very divisive issue, and my concern about something like this is that it, it the, you know, unless we talk about truth and reconciliation, it hands MAGA Republicans yeah. another bat to hit with. Is it ammunition? Oh, completely. Look, uh, look, I'm a white conservative, and I agree with everything Karen just said. This country desperately needs a tough, honest conversation about reparations. There are a number, you mentioned Evanston, Illinois. There are a number of localities trying to implement reparations on a small scale. Good place to start. But my God, for San Francisco to propose $5 million per eligible resident, no matter the details, Laura, Republicans will pounce. Look at what DeSantis is doing right now down in Florida, you know, just pushing this racial stuff. Uh, He knows that that his voters don't even want to deal with our racial history. Uh, This will just feed, I think, Republicans like that more ammunition. It is a testament to the power of a headline and a a quick soundbite to go, oh, here you go, rip it and then have some part of it. I will say there are eligibility requirements, just for the audience's sake. They got to be 18 years of age or older, have been identified as black or African-American on public documents for at least 10 years and meet two of eight additional criteria, including having been born or migrating between 1940 and 1996, having been by the failed war on drugs is one category, or being the direct descendant of somebody who was, being a descendant of someone who was enslaved through U.S. chattel slavery before 1865. And there are a number, including what you mentioned, formerly um, redlining communities, redlined communities. And so when you think about this, this is probably the task that so many different uh, localities are grappling with. And the idea of how do you determine Mm -hmm. eligibility if you are to get past that political hurdle of saying, Let's do this. Right. How do you do it? Because then that's where the rubber meets the road and more ammunition comes. Having said that, you mentioned truth reconciliation. The South African um, yes. you know, truth reconciliation 
the words are escaped me for a moment. The meetings they had and the hearings, excuse me, the hearings on these issues, very powerful and at least coming to terms and addressing what was the obvious more than elephant in the room. But I wonder, we've had these conversations many times in this country, acknowledging the ills of slavery, the evils of slavery, the long history and its, its current impact. And yet it seems to fall on deaf ears, even when numbers like this come up. Well, and I guess that's, I mean, one of the things I don't like, and I grew up in the Bay Area, so I feel like I can say this, one of the things I don't like about this, it's a little bit too out there, because come on, you're not going to give $5 million to 100,000 people. Let's say that's how many, right, that's, that would bankrupt the city. So it, does, it, it sort of lacks a little bit of seriousness where, you know, the other example you gave, 25K per person. And I, as well, I, they thought that too, though. Of course they did. <laughs> but but there not. was at least a level of, here's something we can do. Or there are universities who are looking at, okay, some of our founders may have been slave owners. What can we, liter- what can we realistically do? But again, that's why I say I think we have to start with real truth and reconciliation because we need a shared agreement about the harms of chattel slavery. We need a shared agreement that it, I mean, there are people in this country who still revere Robert E. Lee. I happen to be related to him. There are people in my own family who won't say he was a bad guy, right? So we have to be able to agree on some basics before I think we could have a real conversation about what reparations could look like, which is probably why you're seeing it on the local level. It's a divisive issue. Democrats shouldn't be afraid to really lean into it this isn't helpful to that. Well, we will see what ultimately happens again and what they do in San Francisco. Speaking of what may be helpful and leaning into problems and contentious issues, can Congress do anything about George Santos? I spoke to a Republican member of the House Oversight Committee about that today. We'll tell you what he said next. Well, there are new developments tonight in the George Santos saga, a group of residents in his own districts issuing an open letter to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, calling themselves Concerned Citizens of New York 3. The group called out the freshman congressman for being an imposter and pushed for McCarthy to stand up against Santos, writing, quote, each day that goes by that George Santos occupies a seat in the House is an insult the 700,000-plus residents of the 3rd District, and the country at large. We ask that you immediately withdraw your support for Santos and seek his resignation. Joe Walsh and Karen Finney are back with me now. And joining us, CNN national politics reporter Eva McKend, also joining this evening. Listen, first of all, I mean, it's obvious that what's happening in Washington, D.C. is impacting the people within his own district. They're hearing about this. They're learning about this. They were the ones who were voting, whether they voted for him or not. They had the opportunity to elect a candidate of their choosing. But they assumed, of course, as we all should, that the candidates are who they say they are going to be. I wonder, with this letter that gives indication about what they want to happen, you know, they can't do anything about it for two more years unless McCarthy or others says something about it. I had a chance today to speak to Congressman Scott Perry out of Pennsylvania and asked him about this and what he made makes of the idea that he's still in Congress. Listen to this. It does seem like it's a fraudulent choice. Unfortunately, there's not much of a remedy, um, at least that I know in Congress. Now, if there's a remedy in his state, 
to uh, to recall him based on potentially fraudulent accusations or claims made to get elected, then I think that's fully uh, fully within the purview of of that state and the electorate. I just don't know that there is uh, in this case. So, spoiler alert: there isn't anything. Well, Congress could actually decide. I mean, learn your job, Scott Perry. Actually, they could uh, vote to uh, remove him from co- Congress could could take a vote, as I understand it. You know, if you go through the ethics committee process, you, you could then seek to remove him and they could speed along the ethics committee process. Or as we've you know said before, they could have not put him on committees, particularly where there's money flowing in and out the door. Um, you know, it's a little rich, I have to say, hearing from Scott Perry, because I've got other issues on this issue, because I've got other issues with him. But look, I think it's clear this is an example of how weak a speaker McCarthy is. I mean, he needs George Santos. And George Santos knows he is probably safest sitting in Congress rather than step. So he's not going to step down. And it doesn't look like McCarthy's going to do anything. Well, that point, Eva, I mean, the idea there wasn't, there's not been a political repercussion. I mean, the attempt to shame, the attempt to, in his words, talking around Don Lemme yesterday, have a pile on of accusations against him. There's been things that he's admitted to lying about. But is this really the answer to the old question, have you no shame? Nope. Well, apparently not, Laura. And I think it's it's kind of like both a blessing and a curse of our system that it isn't that it is so difficult to remove someone from elected office. And that's because the people's choice is held in such high regard. But what that letter says from those constituents in the third district of New York is this was not the choice that we made. The person that we voted for, we don't know this person. And so I think you asked, well, what can they do? Uh, They are doing all that they can, right? They have limited power, but they can continue to try to put pressure on their representatives. I think that is why we saw the New York Republicans coming out and calling for Santos to resign, because they're hearing from their constituents who are squeaky wheels here and want them to take action. You know, speaking of squeaky wheels, there's a lot of people talking about even the committee assignment, which I think you're alluding to in part about members of Congress, including Santos, who has a committee assignment, Congressman Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, Paul Gosar had been stripped previously, now have them back, and how, by the way. Um, I asked Congressman Perry about his own assignment to the Oversight Committee, given that there has been allegations of a conflict of interest, conversations around January 6th. Listen to his answer. So since I'm not a target, I don't see why I should be you know, considered unworthy or unable to, to investigate um, the, the malfeasance and the overreach of the federal government. As a matter of fact, since I'm not a target, but yet they seized my cell phone, I'm particularly the guy that should be on that committee. And others like me should be on that committee because we all know full too well what it's like to be persecuted unjustly, unduly by the enormous and immense power of the federal government. What do you say to that, Joe? I I say, and not to defend Perry, but he's, he's the Republican Party. He's an election denier. He's a January 6th sympathizer. That should be absolutely fringe. But Laura, it's not fringe in this Republican Party. It's not fringe in that Republican caucus. Get rid of Scott Perry. Get rid of Marjorie Taylor Greene. As we've said before, good luck finding someone to put on that committee, a Republican who's not an election denier, not a January 6th sympathizer. 
That's just the reality. This is most of this caucus now. But the idea there's no conflict of interest, what do you make of that? I, mean, I think he's wrong on that. I mean, a couple of things. You know, remember that he flouted the January 6th committee when they asked him to appear. So why should we take him seriously on any oversight committee? I mean, I would flip his own answer back on him. And the conflict of interest, there are, I think, at least 10 uh, election deniers who actively worked. And there have been, there's been new reporting, I believe CNN has verified, that shows uh, Congressman Perry was more involved, actually, around some of the um, election, not just the denialism, but the attempt to put in a different attorney general, what have you. Um, so is that someone who should be sitting on an oversight committee? Someone who, particularly given that Trump is running for office, is his goal going to be oversight or denigrating Joe Biden to make him a weak candidate? I just want to note the chair of the committee didn't did vote to certify the election, wasn't, you know, part of the many uh, House Republicans that, that didn't um, vote to that. Uh, was in that camp of election denialism. So we should at least give him some credit there. That's an important <laughs> point. And again, it's one in which many are looking at and saying, hold on to the larger issue of Santos and beyond. The American people have chosen their representatives, assuming they did not have somebody who lied about their who they really were or their platforms. But the fact that we don't have a real mechanism other than the long process that's been a very rarely used process does speak volumes about perhaps a loophole that maybe lawmakers want to look into. Well, there are new details tonight about the school shooting where, you remember this story, a six-year-old allegedly shot his teacher. We'll speak to someone who was there right after this. We're learning tonight that the Virginia teacher who was shot in the chest inside the classroom, allegedly by a six-year-old boy, is now out of the hospital. Officials say Abby's Werner was released earlier this week. Now, the boy's family is putting out a statement today calling the incident an unimaginable tragedy and claiming the gun was secured before the shooting. The Newport News Public Schools did not respond when CNN asked for a comment. But parents who are angry... Fearful and frustrated about the shooting vented at a school board meeting just this week. I send my kids to school and find myself praying to God that they will return home safely. Don't want to have a family dinner where I talk about where my kids will hide in their school. She's terrified because the person that was advocating for her got hurt. She got hurt. You guys should have been defending and protect her when she came or whoever came and said that there was a possible weapon in that child's backpack or otherwise. Joining me now is Lawanda Sample Rusk. Her grandson attends the school and she was actually there the day of the shooting and gave first aid to that teacher. Also with me, CNN National Security Analyst Juliet Kayam. I'm glad to have you both here. Let me begin with you, Lawanda, because... You, know, you were actually going to the school to pick up your grandson that day, saw this teacher who was touching and clutching her body, and, there, and you saw that she was bleeding, and you helped to provide some kind of first aid. What was going through your mind? What did you think happened? Well, at that point, um, <clears throat> we knew that a teacher had been shot. Uh, we knew that someone had been shot. Um, because another school official came into the office where I was signing up my grandson, and let us know that there was a shooting and someone had been shot, of course. Um, within a few minutes, then 
uh, Ms. Werner came into the office holding her hand and stating that she had been shot in the call 911. At that point, she laid out on the floor and um, she, yeah, she was in a lot of distress. It was really scary. It was very scary. Um, we didn't know what to do. I didn't know really exactly what to do. So someone just yelled, put pressure on her wound. And at that point, she was in the floor and I did that. Oh, my God. The, the trauma of what happened and what that must have been like, obviously, for her and for you trying to piece everything together. What have you made of the school's reaction and response? There's reports about um, whether the gun was secure, why, he, of course, had it in the first place. What have you made of the school's response to now? Well, up until, the, as far as the school's response to the shooting, um, once the teacher came into the office, and there was others in the office as well, um, two secretaries, and then someone else came into the office. So once they got into the, once um, the teacher was secure and um, the school's response they was doing everything they could to make sure that the children, the other children in the school were safe. Because at that point, we knew it was a shooting. We didn't know who it was, where it was um, before Ms. Warner came into the office. We didn't know who it was. So that was the panic there. Um, but afterwards, once we found out, then we um, everything kind of calmed down a little bit. And then um, I guess they were communicating over the walkies or over the phones from the classrooms. And we were told that... Um, the person that was shooting the child had been um, secure, that they had uh, someone else had the child. <sighs> Juliet, when you hear this, of course, you know, your training yeah. and expertise is contemplating in, in many scenarios, the worst case right. scenario, what to do, how to avert this from happening, how to solve the problem, how to react. What do you think of when you hear about some of the changes that are being proposed, including things like um, clear backpacks, the idea of um, forcing students to have a search or other mechanisms? What do you think of all that? I mean, we always go to defensive measures rather than intervention. And I, I don't, we don't know all the facts yet, but I'm just going to tell you from our reporting, there's two moments where there should have been an intervention. The first, of course, is what does it mean? Uh, what do the parents mean to say that the gun is secure? It's just, that's just not factually accurate. I mean, it's just, it can't possibly be. Uh, they, maybe they thought it was secure, it was not secure to their six-year-old. Uh, the second factual question we have is, uh, there is a time period that the school knows that there it might be a gun on campus. They, at least by reporting, uh, search his backpack, the child's backpack. They do not see it. Did they not uh, uh, go to him and try to isolate him? This is a child described by the parents, not me, described by the parents as having uh, educational disorders, I don't remember their exact language, and also uh, strong oversight by the parents because of uh, behavioral mental issues. So so those are my two intervention points. So before I get all the kids locking down and in and, and clear backpacks, the adults never did anything. And so let's just focus on the adults. Virginia has no requirement to secure a, a weaponry in a home with children. It's not even clear in this case that the law is going to cover this case mm. because the law is complicated in terms of recklessness. The, the reckless law that you hear people talk about is only if the victim 
is under 14, not if the shooter is under 14. So we're going to have to see if there's any uh, legal claims or against the adults. I think we really need to focus on the intervention by adults at this stage. It's a six-year-old child uh, who, who had uh, 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 issues before uh, and the interventions were not taken. Well, Lawanda, the focus ought to be as well on the children who are impacted. And I certainly mm-hmm. hope that your grandson is okay, as are the other students in the school who are grappling with what could have been. And the parents, like myself, mm-hmm. I have a mommy of school age children. And to hear about gun violence again in a school is really disturbing. Thank you, Lawanda. Thank you. You're very that. welcome. Speaking of gun violence and what, is, what can possibly go wrong, well, Alec Baldwin facing two counts of involuntary manslaughter for the fatal shooting on the set of one of his movies. Blindside is the word he uses and how his attorney is using to describe the way that Alec Baldwin now feels. We've got a deep dive into all those charges after this. Well, Alec Baldwin is facing two counts of involuntary manslaughter tonight in the 2021 Rust movie set shooting. Cinematographer Helena Hutchins was killed when she was struck by a live round of ammunition that was fired from a prop gun held by Alec Baldwin. The movie's armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, will also be charged with two counts of involuntary manslaughter. Now, Baldwin's attorney says the actor feels blindsided and is gearing up for a fight. I want to start with CNN security correspondent Josh Campbell and entertainment reporter Chloe Malas. They've both been covering this story since the very beginning. Let me begin with you here, Josh, because you actually spoke to the DA intent on bringing these charges. What are you learning about these charges? Yeah, you know, Laura, I spoke with the district attorney and the special counsel here in their first TV interview since those charges were announced. And what the DA said specifically is that this basically comes down to, in her view, negligence, negligence on the set of that movie Rust. That, of course, resulting in these two charges of involuntary manslaughter uh, uh, towards uh, Alec Baldwin, as well as the armorer on the set. This was the person who was responsible for the safety of the firearms that were there on set. Of course, the big question, how did a live round of ammunition get inside a movie weapon that's uh, that obviously resulted in a death on the set now i want to take you, uh, you to listen to some sound from that interview with the da i asked her specifically was there one particular piece of evidence that sealed it for you that you knew that you had to prosecute that she said it was actually much more broader than that take a listen it was the totality of the circumstances that this was a really fast and loose set and that that nobody was doing their job. There were three people that if they had done their job that day, this tragedy wouldn't have happened. And that's David Halls, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed and Alec Baldwin. If they had just done their basic duties, this we wouldn't be standing here. And as far as what comes next, the DA says that she expects that those charges will be filed by the end of this month, and then a summons will be sent to the defendants. Uh, She said they won't be arresting anyone. They'll be summoning them either to come in person or to show up by video conference. Uh, And then we'll see how this prosecution goes and what additional evidence comes about. Of course, we know that uh, all the defendants continue to uh, profess their innocence and will likely put up uh, an aggressive defense. It's curious that she would have announced that the charges are still 
not happening right now. They haven't actually been filed yet until I guess the end of the month. I want to bring you in here, Chloe, because I'm wondering how Alec Baldwin, who is one of the people who's been charged, a third person, obviously, that was named by the DA in the interview with Josh, has already pleaded to, I believe, a misdemeanor in this event based on a negligence similar claim. Um, how is Alec Baldwin responding to all of this tonight? You know, Laura, I spoke to Alec Baldwin's attorney, and I've been in close contact with Baldwin and his attorney over the last year plus since this tragic accident happened. And that is exactly what Alec Baldwin and his legal team has always maintained, that this was an accident. And, you know, I sat down with Alec Baldwin in August, and we spoke about what was happening on the set. And he talked about how the safety was of the utmost importance. Um, and I want you to hear a little bit about, um, a little bit of what he told me in August. Take a listen. The business is a business which is, is, is cautious and careful and protects the members of the crew all the time, all the time as a rule. And this is a one in a billion event. And in that one in a billion event, there are two people who didn't do what they were supposed to do. They didn't do. And I, I'm, I'm not sitting there saying, I want them to, you know, to go to prison or I want their lives to be hell. I don't want, but I want everybody to know that those are the two people that are responsible for what happened. So Alec Baldwin has always said that there was a breakdown in the chain of command of safety on the set and that it began with the armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. Then it moves to Dave Hulls, the assistant director. And in a statement today from Alec Baldwin's attorney, because we haven't heard from Alec himself, this is what Alec's attorney, Luke Nikas, is telling CNN, um, quote, this decision distorts Helena Hutchins' tragic death and represents a terrible miscarriage of justice. Mr. Baldwin had no reason to believe there was a live bullet in the gun or anywhere on the movie set. He relied on the professionals with whom he worked who assured him the gun did not have live rounds. We will fight these charges and we will win. So you're also seeing here that there's no plea deal for Alec Baldwin. He tells me via his attorney that he is going to fight this. He will see this through to a jury trial, and that could be a year plus from now. Um, so this is a very difficult time for Helena Hutchins' family, but they have released a statement in support of these charges. And I want to read you a little bit about what Helena Hutchins' family is saying. So Helena Hutchins' uh, widower is putting out a statement saying that their in independent investigation also supports charges are warranted and that it's a comfort to the family that in New Mexico, no one is above the law. So what's interesting to me, though, is that there was this private settlement between Alec Baldwin, Russ Productions and Helena Hutchins' family. And they were actually set to go back and finish filming this movie this year in just about a month or two. So, again, um, it's interesting as to what Alec Baldwin has maintained and what he's saying. But the D.A. today telling Josh Campbell that they believe he pulled the trigger. They believe he's responsible. Alec Baldwin maintaining to CNN that he never pulled the trigger. So, you know, that is, I think, the biggest question. And how did Life Bullets yeah. get on the set? Josh, I want to talk about that latter part as well, and we'll circle back to that statement, because I do think it's interesting about what the family is saying today versus what they said mm -hmm. following that private settlement. We'll get to that in just a moment. But on that point about the trigger and, um, and whether it was actually pulled by Alec Baldwin, you asked the DA about this very notion. What did she have to say? 
I did. And this is so interesting. One thing that we learned in that interview was that, you know, there's been this debate about what liability does an actor have? You know, if, if someone on the set hands them a gun and says this is a what's called a cold gun, there's no ammunition in it, is it still incumbent upon that person to check the weapon? And we've heard from Alec Baldwin, you know, saying that, I, that that wasn't really an issue. We've heard other actors, for that matter, say the same, that when they're handed a gun and they're told that it's empty, they typically believe that. Interestingly, the DA told me that as part of their investigation, they actually consulted with a number of actors, including, as she mentioned, A-list actors who said, no, it's actually quite the opposite, that these actors themselves check the weapon or have it checked in their presence. The reason why this is so important is because it gets to exactly what you were saying about whether Alec Baldwin actually pulled the trigger. So if he didn't check it to see if it was empty, uh, that moves to the next layer of, of negligence, and that is something caused that gun to go off. Alec Baldwin has told Chloe, he's told uh, others that uh, that he never pulled the trigger. But I asked the DA about that because we know that part of this investigation included the FBI actually looking at that weapon. They determined that there was no way with the, the gun cocked uh, that it would have gone off without the trigger being pulled. I asked the DA, take a listen to her answer. Obviously, we know the FBI report says that that gun could not have gone off cocked without pulling the trigger. Are you confident that he actually pulled the trigger? Yes, absolutely. The FBI lab is one of the best in the world, and we absolutely believe that the trigger had to have been pulled in order for that gun to go off. The trigger was pulled. And interestingly as well, uh, and you'll appreciate this, Laura, obviously as a former federal prosecutor, you know, I asked the DA, is does this go beyond just this one case with Rust? Are you also trying to perhaps send a signal out there to other movie production companies that this type, these types of lapse practices allegedly on, on the set of this movie uh, are unacceptable and that they will be prosecuted? She said, absolutely, because you have to remember at the end of the day, this comes down to the death of someone, a tragedy, the loss of life of uh, cinematographer Helena Hutchins, of course, the district attorneys here saying that part of her effort is to ensure that other production staff members out there can go to their place of work, which movie sets are, uh, and, and do so in a place that is not, you know, filled with all kinds of safety violations. So, so many layers to this investigation and, and such a fascinating interview today. We will see what, how this all unfolds. We don't yet have the official charges having been filed. Thank you to both of you. I want to bring in our lawyers and talk about this as well. CNN legal analyst Ariva Martin and former U.S. attorney Harry Littman. I'm glad to see you both here today. Look, there's a lot going on in terms of trying to unpack, trying to define negligence, who did what, when, who had a duty of care to do what. And there is the civil settlement that took place in October. I was alluding to it with our prior guests. I just want to read for the audience's sake this distinction between what they are saying today, the family, and before. Today, they are talking about supporting the charges and will fully cooperate with the prosecution and, and want to hold people accountable. Um, back in October, when the, state, when the family did settle, and this is a civil settlement, as part of that settlement, the case was dismissed, and they said, I have no interest in engaging in recriminations or attribution of blame to the producers or Mr. Baldwin. All of us believe Helena's death was a terrible accident. Now, I, I want to go to you first, Ariva, on this because um, the assessment of fault and the impact of even a civil settlement in a case is and can be impactful. I wonder, um, do you think that these charges are appropriate? I do, Laura. I know a lot of people believe that Alec Baldwin was just doing what all actors do, relying on the uh, you know, the work of the armorer and the assistant director. 
But he had the gun and he had an opportunity like we know George Clooney talks about when he's involved in shooting movies where there's a gun involved. He had the last opportunity to look at that gun to make sure that there wasn't live ammunition in it. And it would be unimaginable for the prosecutor to charge the armorer and this other director without charging the person that actually pulled the trigger. And based on the DA, she's 100% certain, given that FBI report, that the trigger was pulled. And we have to keep in mind, Laura, Alec Baldwin wasn't just an actor on this set. He was also a producer. So all of the evidence that the prosecutor talks about in terms of the totality of the evidence, there's a lot of evidence out there about these safety lapses. The armorer sending text messages saying she was stretched too thinly. We know the armorer herself didn't have a great deal of experience. Crews walking off the set because of safety violations and other allegations about uh, safety problems on that set. So I think the prosecutor is not just looking at Alec Baldwin, the actor, but looking at his responsibilities as a producer to make sure that that set was safety. And according to this prosecutor, it was far from safe. Now, Harry, to that point, I want to bring you in here because um, following the logic that Ariva so eloquently laid out there, one would think, well, hold on then. This wouldn't be limited to just three particular people who'd be charged. It wasn't a singular producer who would have a duty of care in addition to those who would have been in that sort of custodial chain of handling the gun and ultimately ensuring that it was not ar- not live ammunition inside. So do you have a sense of why the charges are confined to these three in particular, if there might be a number of people who would have owed a duty of care in a workplace to this young woman? I do. But let me start with this duty of care idea. She told, as Josh just reported, it was about negligence. Actually, she told the New York Times he had an absolute duty to be sure the gun was safe. That's just wrong and way wrong as a matter of criminal law. It's stated as criminal negligence, and people could confuse that with the sort of negligence if you're in a car accident. It is not. It has to be a gross deviation from the standard of care that an actor would employ in that situation. And she's making clear she's charging him as an actor. Even as a producer, however, he's the, first of all, it's not the producer's job, it's the other two, the assistant director who's now pleaded and the armorer to be sure this is safe. But he's the kind of producer that a lot of big shot actors are. You put your name on and you make more money. I think this is really, it is a miscarriage of justice, I'm, I'm sorry to say, and it is really a grotesque overcharge as to Baldwin. There's there's just anyone who knows who's been on a set knows this is no gross deviation from what actors do. Actors hear from the armor. It's cold. And they and they rely on that. And that's notwithstanding. I think it's probably true that they can show I'm going to be on a reasonable doubt that he pulled the trigger. But charging him based on this concept of criminal negligence, as you know, as a former criminal prosecutor, it just ain't there. And it's different from what she said to the papers. Let me play devil's advocate before I bring you in here, Rita, on this very point, though. I mean, the idea of negligence, you know, we we think about the duty of care that's owed to somebody that you are in a position of either authority or to act prudently and to avoid injury by taking the steps necessary to avoid the unimaginable from happening. And it it can be involved in what's called lawful conduct, right, Harry? The idea of not just having the commission of a crime or otherwise, but engaging in behavior that you were entitled entitled to be engaged in. It's not criminal. But because there's either a series of lapses of judgment or your prudence is not there, you can be held to account in that scenario. So are you suggesting that by virtue of the fact that 
other people were also responsible to ensure gun safety, it would absolve another? If you're talking to me, absolutely not. And again, you're using the language and the concept of negligence, due care. That is not what we're talking about. And it's quite clear under either theory under New Mexico law. I spent some time with the New Mexico law this afternoon. You must show criminal negligence. And that is a much different and higher concept. So you can say if there was an absolute duty, as she's saying in the papers, you're you're totally right. Any Any place that gun went through, they would have violated that duty. But that is not what the criminal law is about. It, and, and I really think it is a miscarriage of justice. So, Areva, what is your take on that? The idea of the criminal negligence and how, I mean, obviously you, you've got your share of trials. How would you go about either trying to defend this case or even to try to understand how to prosecute it? Well, first of all, I, I disagree with Harry on this point that this is a, a grotesque miscarriage of justice. I think when you look at the totality of the facts, this prosecutor had no choice but to charge Alec Baldwin and the two others that were uh, charged, uh, that are going to be charged. And there is some dispute about what the standard of care is on these movie sets. Uh, There was a safety expert uh, today talking about what's done in New York and how police officers are on sets in New York whenever a gun is fired and how that Police officers are there to make sure before a gun is fired, you know, the ammunition that's in that gun is looked at and there's a final safety check before anyone can handle a gun that's going to be in a scene. So there is no hard and fast way, apparently, the way this is done. And that's going to be an issue that the jurors are going to have to grapple with. And we're going to see a lot of experts, Laura, coming in to this case. It's going to be a battle of the experts, the prosecution putting on experts to try to establish what should have been done, what the standard in the industry is, what the protocols are. And obviously, Alec Baldwin, whose position is that he was not responsible because he relied on the armor and the assistant director. So experts coming in saying that that was reasonable for him to do so. So I don't think it's a shut and close case at all. I think it was an appropriate charge. And it remains to be seen. We do know it's difficult to get a conviction against uh, when you have a celebrity involved. We know that people tend to like their celebrities and they're sometimes hesitant to convict celebrities. And we know the standard of care is going to be quite high, you know, beyond reasonable doubt. So not to suggest it's a walk in the park, but that doesn't mean just because the case is hard to win that it should not be prosecuted. Well, we have a lot more to learn before it obviously goes to trial. Again, these charges have not yet, I understand, been filed. They have been spoken that they're going to be. But I mean, just between us lawyers, obviously here, We've all had to handle a gun in a courtroom as part of evidence. And we have a marshal who will hand it back to us to show you that it's clear. And there's the expectation that if that marshal says to you before you handle it, it's clear, it's been, you know, zip tied in some way or whatever. I do wonder just how many of us have gone back to check that and look to see if there was anything in the chambers. I know that, you know, this is going to have, my point, repercussions in a lot more industries than just in Hollywood and when it comes to gun safety, for good reason. Thank you both. Thank you. Look, we have a, we've got a lot more to cover and come on this hour on the charges against Alec Baldwin, as well as the armorer on the set of Rust. Next, why the Screen Actors Guild calls the charges wrong and uninformed. Tonight, the Screen Actors Guild is slamming the decision to charge Alec Baldwin with involuntary manslaughter 
and the death of Rust cinematographer Helena Hutchins, calling it wrong and uninformed. In a statement, they add, quote, the death of Helena Hutchins is a tragedy, and all the more so because of its preventable nature. It is not a failure of duty or a criminal act on the part of any performer. Joining me now, the National Executive Director of SAG-AFTRA, Duncan Crabtree, Ireland. Thank you for joining. Why are you calling these charges wrong and uninformed? Uh, well, thanks for having me, Laura. It is wrong and uninformed because it, the charges clearly indicate a lack of understanding about the standards and expectations of how a film set operates. And the fact is, actors are not firearms experts. Actors cannot be expected and are not expected to do final safety checks or anything of that nature. Some of them may choose to, to gain that expertise, but that's not a normal part of being an actor. And even in the joint uh, industry-wide safety bulletin, it makes it very clear that the responsibility for those final checks and making sure firearms are safe is not with the actor. So who do you believe, given that, I mean, the DA seemed to allude that, um, and had, had spoken to A-list celebrities was the phrase they used, and actors who they, quote, always check their guns or have someone check it in front of them. That seemed to be what she was intimating was the standard. Is that wrong? Well, that's definitely not the standard that's in our, in our established joint industry-wide safety uh, bulletin, which is agreed to by all the major production companies and unions involved uh, in production. Um, and of course, it is true that some actors, you know, some actors go above and beyond. Some actors choose to do their own stunts. Some actors choose to educate themselves on how to fly airplanes or how to uh, also details on how to use firearms. But that's not a basic part of the job. And there are other professionals on set who, who do have that on-set safety responsibility. And um, that's, you know, that's not the actor. So I'm not <clears throat> commenting on the facts or specifics of this particular case. We don't know the details of the charges even yet. We've only heard about them through press reporting and things of that nature. But uh, the fact is an actor is not a firearm safety expert and is not the person who's responsible for doing those checks and making sure that firearms uh, used on a set are safe. Important to hear your perspective. Duncan Crabtree, Ireland, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So the big question is how, well, did a star like Alec Baldwin with a decades-long career in movies and television end up facing criminal charges along with the armorer on that set? We're going to talk about it more next. So the big question on everyone's mind tonight is, how did a star of movies like TV and, uh, and movies and TV like Alec Baldwin, who's been in the spotlight for decades, how did he end up where we are tonight, facing criminal charges in the deadly shooting on the set of the movie Rust that claimed the life of cinematographer Helena Hutchins? Well, joining me now, Jim Moray, chief correspondent for Inside Edition and Wall Street Journal reporter Catherine Sayer. This is a, a day that, according to the attorneys, Alec Baldwin, Catherine, is feeling blindsided by today's charges. Why do you think they didn't expect these criminal charges? Well, I think if you um, go back to when the shooting happened, you know, I was covering it from, from day one. And you think back to that time, um, when film production is just ramping back up after the pandemic, there's this huge demand for content. And this was really uh, a pet project of Alex, 
Um, but a low-budget film, $7 million, and a lot of questions began to be raised about whether there was a cutting of corners at the expense of safety. Um, but this was, you know, Alex's um, pet project that he was focused on getting done in just a few weeks. We just spoke to Duncan Crabtree, Ireland, um, Jim, who is the National Executive Director of SAG-AFTRA. And, um, you know, one of the reasons I'm sure that they're coming forward in, in support of a fellow actor is the idea that this is going to have a ripple effect and repercussions, certainly, on perhaps the way that safety protocols are put in place or how they're implemented and held to account. And he is obviously facing some pretty serious, tough headlines. He's had that before. But he told CNN in August that he lost five jobs since the Rust shooting. What is the impact on his career, on the bigger issues of what this will look like in Hollywood as well and how it might change people's approach? As far as his career, I think you really have to wait till the other shoe drops. You have to wait to see what happens as this case unfolds. You know, your guests from SAG-AFTRA and even Harry Lippman made compelling cases that there's a standard of care in this industry. And they argued that that Alec Baldwin followed that standard of care and that the actor isn't the one responsible in this case. However, this is more complicated than I think a typical case. You, You talk about a very low budget film. You talk about a situation where there were allegations of safety lapses or violations of safety protocols. Alec Baldwin is a producer on this case. This was a rehearsal. You could argue there shouldn't have been anything in that gun for a rehearsal. So a cold gun in that case would imply nothing is in the gun, not a blank. And and also, the the, the armorer wasn't even in the room at the time. That's another alleged safety lapse. So I, I don't think it's so cut and dry. And I think that Alec Baldwin has every expectation that he can win this case if he puts on a solid case. He believes he's innocent. He also believes he's not responsible at all. He says he didn't pull the trigger. Your other guests uh, confirmed that the FBI did an analysis of the gun. They found it to be operational. The only way the gun would go off is if the trigger is pulled. So there are a lot of questions in this case, Laura. There are a lot of questions. And of course, we are focusing obviously on Alec Baldwin, but there is another person who has been charged, that armorer, and a third person, of course, who's already entered a guilty plea for a lesser charge. And we should note that the penalty for these and the proposed sentences can be up to a $5,000 fine, up to 18 months in prison. These are serious charges. And again, it did claim the life of um, this cinematographer. But there is a lot of reference on this point, Catherine, to the idea of the, the budget on the set. Um, the DA talked about there had been some other instances where crew members had walked off, intimating this was related to safety. And we know at one point there was a walkout over payment and housing disputes and at least two accidental prop gun discharges on the set in the days before the shootings. Um, So there were some issues, as reported by other outlets as well. What impact do you see this having? Um, Well, to Jim's point, you know, there are still a lot of questions. You know, you brought up Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, the armorer. Um, she was essentially, you know, a rookie. She had studied, studied under her father, who is a veteran armorer in the industry, but she had just come off her first project as lead armorer. And as she said, she was not only armorer on Rust, but she was had a second job uh, assisting on props. And so, you know, some of the questions around her was, you know, did the production hire 
um, the most experienced person or was there some, you know, essentially cross-cutting around that? You know, it's going to be important, Jim, to think about where all this leads. And and as we learn more, the charges have not yet been filed, I understand, but they are, you know, um, imminent at this point. And so we'll have serious repercussions probably across a number of industries. Jim, Catherine, thank you so much. My pleasure. Up next, we have a former prop master for Saturday Night Live. Says, and he says that he saw some red flags, well, everywhere after the Rust fatal shooting. We'll also hear from an armorer who works on movie sets and give us some further clarity on what might have happened here. A lawyer for Alec Baldwin says the actor and his legal team feel blindsided that he's being charged with involuntary manslaughter in the fatal shooting of cinematographer Helena Hutchins on the set of Rust. Baldwin insists he did not know the gun was loaded with a live round. The film's armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, is also charged. Let's discuss now with Dutch Merrick, the founder of Prop Gun Safety, and Rob Ackerman, the former prop master for Saturday Night Live. Glad to have you both here and lean on an area where everyone's wondering what is supposed to happen on these sets, what actually does happen, and this idea of what the standard is in the industry, let alone a duty of care. Let me begin with you here on this, Rob, because you were actually a prop master at Saturday Night Live for 20 years. You actually worked at one point on the show with Alec Baldwin. And you said when the shooting actually happened, you noticed some red flags almost immediately. What were they? Uh, There's so many. Uh, Basically, uh, there's a a system, a series of checks and balances on how to be safe on set. At SNL, because it was frantic and hectic, we had a very strong assistant director called the AD who would uh, work with with an armorer with Ed and firearms very closely also a supervising producer. And then I really believe the actor's job is always to be an artist, to be a performer, to think about the work of telling a story in kind of a make-believe artistic endeavor. And the armor's job is to kind of be a a check and a safety check on everything uh, on that actor's behalf. That's how it has always gone at SNL. And the armorer, when I worked at SNL, took that off my plate, my very full plate. And I was always grateful to the armors for, for his or her expertise when it came to handling firearms. Well, Dutch, you are an armorer. And, um, and I, I ask, in the sense of what seems to have transpired here, according to what the DA is saying about the impending charges, she laid out a case that essentially not only the armorer was at fault because she has also been charged, but also Alec Baldwin and the responsibility for him and having handled the weapon to perform a similar safety check that would have been expected of that armorer. How do you see it? Well, you know, I now obviously we teach a class. We do a workshop based on, you know, Rust sort of brought this whole thing to bear. And a big part of the class is to break down the many failings on the Rust set. And we've identified about 35 really particular uh, contributing factors so when we have a workshop and a room filled with film professionals, we go through those bullet points, all 35 things, and say, all these things happened. Now you tell me who's responsible for this death. 
and we have a discussion. And I don't let them finish until we get to at least 10 different names. There's that many hands in this that took some part and had some contribution to why uh, Helena Hutchins is not with us today. And, you know, obviously not the least of it was the where the buck stops in the actor's hand with a loaded gun that he never expected to be loaded. But you can work your way all the way back up the food chain from the person that handed it to him, the first AD who should never be handling a gun ever. That is not his job. A first AD is like a conductor. They don't play any of the instruments. They just tell them all when to come in on cue. Um, and so then you take that back to the armorer, the prop master, the ammo supplier, the producers for their hiring practices. There's so many hands in this, and it's a it's a great example for us to learn by and realize how we need to change some of the worst practices in low budget non union films in particular. Sally, that lesson um, that has been derived from it has cost mm-hmm. someone their life, and I, I wonder on that point, Dutch, in your experience, I mean, would it have been odd? to have learned that there was even live ammunition on a set. I mean, obviously, you you were the prop master at Saturday Night Live. I'm sure there's been a fair share of skits that have involved some level of a prop resembling or maybe even being a gun. Has there ever been, in your experience, an expectation that there would be live ammunition that could possibly be in the area? Absolutely not. It would be unconscionable to have a bullet, an active bullet. There, there are the fake, you know, the the, the blanks of the the blanks and flash rounds are one thing. They have wadding, and it's a, a couple of times we've had those. They don't look like bullets. The things that look like bullets that are fake have a little uh, a, a ball bearing inside. They rattle, and the armor was talking about. She thought they all rattled. It's very clear that they're hollow. But if a if a bullet were to appear on my set at SNL, I would stop everything. I would stop everything and get, I, I would, I'd be horrified. And it wouldn't because no really seasoned armor would ever bring uh, uh, live ammunition, you know, bullets that would fit into a, a working firearm to a set. It's just not even in the realm of uh, something I can imagine at SNL. And if it happened, I would, uh, I, I, I would stop everything. On that point, Rob, there's been a lot made, and I've heard this phrase throughout the night, we've heard it throughout the day, and ever since this shooting, about a low-budget or a non-union film. Why is that point so relevant in terms of a teaching lesson or a moment to recognize what could have gone wrong here? Why was the budget so important in this conversation? It seems to me, and I, Dutch can add to this. He's got a lot of experience too, but it seems to me that they were having this young woman multitask. She was working as a prop assistant and also as an armorer, which anytime there's a firearm on set, that's, that is just not okay. Your one and only uh, task, and every armorer I've ever worked with, this has been true, the one and only task is the care and safety and moment to moment safety with that, with that, uh, with that prop gun or firearm. Mm. That's all you should be thinking about. And any, any ancillary work, uh, I don't think is a fair expectation, but I think that was most likely happening because uh, of the low budget, because there wasn't uh, another line to a line item to, to, to spare. Dutch Merrick, Rob Ackerman, thank you so much. For having me. Everyone up next, Hollywood's history, unfortunately, of tragic accidents. I'm 
Alec Baldwin facing charges in the on-set shooting death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins. But this horrible incident is just the latest tragedy on a Hollywood set. Remember back in 1993, the Crow star Brandon Lee was killed by a prop gun that was later found to be improperly loaded. In 1984, actor John Eric Hexum died after accidentally shooting himself in the head with a prop gun. And tally the incidents, well, they go on. Joining me now to discuss, editor-in-chief of The Wrap, Sharon Waxman, and corporate lawyer and entertainment attorney, Dominic Romano. Let me begin with you here, Sharon, because just enlisting just some of the incidents that we've seen, the question is, for so many, I mean, does Hollywood take safety seriously enough? Well, it's interesting. I mean, the the, the last horrific uh, incident that you're citing is literally 30 years ago. And in that period of time, there have been not hundreds, but probably thousands of productions that have gone on with relative safety. And I've never heard of anything even like close, like a close call of a gun going off like this. Wow. So I don't know that it's fair. I mean, I'm not here to like defend Hollywood if that's not fair, but it doesn't feel to me like this is an issue from talking to all the experts at the time of the rush shooting that there is a culture of laxity. This pr- particular production had a ton of problems. Uh, so I, I, right now, it, whether this could ever happen again is, a t- you know, is a terrible thing to contemplate because right now the implications uh, of this are, you know, this tragedy for this woman and her family. Mm. And all the other people who now have to live with the fact that this happened and that they were part of this tragedy. Dominic, I see you champing at the bit. What's your reaction? Yeah, I have yeah. a very different view. <laughs> uh, look at the facts. The, the first fatality in a film uh, across the border, 1914. Between 1980 and 1990, 37 deaths in the United States alone, 24 of them by helicopter crashes. Now we have drones, not too many people dying on sets on helicopters, but since 1990, over 50 people in the United States have died on film and television sets, 50, and 150 life-altering injuries. Check the Associated Press article from 2016, and there have been a number of deaths since. Deadpool 2, someone killed in Vancouver, Canada, over 40 people, dozens of people internationally. This is a real problem. And we're talking about slaps on the wrist. You talked earlier about a $5,000 fine for these people uh, if, if the charges are, uh, go, go through. In the film The Crow, the fine was reduced to $55,000. That film grossed over $50 million. There's not enough deterrence, and there is lack safety on not on all movie sets or film, television sets, but, but on several. History I mean, shows. I, I would just bring up a, a different issue is, is that as movies have to amp up the excitement and the stunts, then, you know, you see Fast and Furious. You just saw the Mission Impossible trailer with Tom Cruise doing literally death defying stunts. Then the risk level naturally goes higher because the audience expectation of yet more thrilling things to see on screen goes higher. So, but that's not what happened on this set. This was a Western in the most traditional sense that didn't have any money and didn't seem to have follow Hmm. 
very well-established protocols. So whether there is a problem on sets that have to do with, you know, very uh, intense, uh, heli- you, uh, you referred to helicopters, that's mm-hmm. not what was going on on this set. True, true. But That's this true. Is not- well, well, hold on one second. Yeah. I got to tell you, this is not going to end today, this conversation, but unfortunately it has to end tonight. And we're going to carry on and continue to to talk about this very important issue. I thank you both. Everyone, thank you for watching. Our coverage does continue. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.